How's it going, everyone? We're back with another episode of the Urban Golf Podcast. This week, Mac and I talked to Cameron McCormick. Cameron barely needs an introduction. He's one of the best coaches in the world. He has coached Jordan Spieth since he was 12 years old, all the way till when he became the world number one and won multiple majors in 2015. Cameron is originally from Australia, came to the United States in 2000, and has coached over here since then. He has a background in biomechanics and technology, and the way he coaches is is right up our alley here at Urban Golf Performance. We love the guy. It was awesome. It was a true honor and pleasure to have him on. And we really enjoyed this conversation that we were, where we went into the art of coaching, golf performance, Jordan Spieth, and life. So please enjoy Cameron McCormick, everyone. So Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited to talk to you. And I'm going to just kind of rush into this and kind of go deep right away. Mm -hmm. So when we hire people at UGP, we really want to understand their true why, you know, and, and the deeper why. So, you know, the superficial answer might be I like to help people and I like golf. But what's kind of five layers deeper than that for you? five layers deeper than that for me. So if yeah. I was the person sitting in front of you and you were conducting the interview, you're asking me the why. The why all boils down to being an uh, enabler or a, um, a conduit, a conduit to a better version of the person sitting across the, uh, the other side of the table or sitting or standing in front of me in a hitting bay or standing in front of me on a range or sharing some time on the golf course with me. It's, uh, I, I like to use the expression that as coaches, we're like candles. Uh, we consume ourselves to light the pathway for others. And that's everything that I exist to be. That's everything I've existed to be since I was, I mean, I think if you trace this kind of lineage into coaching and instruction all the way back, I was that way in, in college as well. I was consuming myself with the goal of becoming the best possible player I can be. So I was, I was self-coaching. And whilst that certainly helped me become a better player, at the same time, it was helping me understand how to pick through the pieces of enhancing performance and understand what it was in my performance DNA that needed to change. And then that then dovetailed into a coaching career that I'd almost primed myself for for a good four and a half, five years trying to play college golf and then ultimately playing professional golf for a couple of years after that. So I guess the long-winded way to answer a short question, it's really about enabling goals to be achieved goals that are someone else's but yet you have the knowledge and the wherewithal and the, the the resources because you've been doing this hopefully for an extended period of time to bring those things to life and then when you help someone either on a macro scale or a micro scale over a long term or a very short term it could be just one shot put a smile on their face and that the amount of joy that you give someone else for being able to do something they could formally not do is returned to you as a coach tenfold mm. And why do you think you enjoy it so much? Like, what what is the deeper why there? Why do you think you ended up being a person that basically is willing to consume yourself to to light up others? Like that very selfless ability of a of a of a true coach. Yeah, I think it goes kind of bolting on to the back end of that last answer. That 
when you can help someone experience something that they formerly couldn't experience without without your help, there is a self-serving aspect to that, that it brings you uh, a level of confidence and, and satisfaction that you've achieved your goal as well, which is being that conduit, being that enabler. But at the same time as well, at a deeper level, I'm never one that's a person that's been satisfied with uh, not having the answers to problems. Uh, so when things remain unsolved or when there are far too many unknowns, uh, those are the rabbit holes that I like to run down to try and uh, uh, uncover the mystery behind the uh, reason a person can't do or can't achieve what they otherwise want to try and achieve. So, yeah, it's a it's, an, it's a never-ending mine that you're you're digging in and trying to turn over all stones to try and uncover um, what those difference makers are for the person that you're coaching. Cameron, what you know, what what would you say? You know, we spend a lot of time with our coaches. You think you'd you'd spend time, you know, teaching them the fundamentals of instruction and 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 the body and and everything else. But it seems to be the foundation of everything is interpersonal skills and communication. And so we we spend so much time when we we train new staff on just body language and communication and and sort of and and things like that. And where have you cultivated that from? And, and why are you why are you such a good community? Even just hearing you talk for a second right now, I can hear how many analogies you can make. And so, you know, where does that communication come from? And what is your style as a coach? Yeah, I think the style, to start with that, is very much that of a chameleon, that you're standing in front of someone and giving a different version of yourself each time you see them. Or even in a session, you might be spending an hour or two hours with someone and you're going to move and migrate between your character roles, given the current circumstance. We'll call that the field of players. Uh, favorite author of mine, Tom Todd Herman, would describe in his book, Alter Ego. So given what's presented to you as a coach, then you have to move and adapt to solve the particular challenge that you're, you're given on that at that moment. So where did this come from is the deeper question. The answer is I don't know. Certainly a lot of it came from observation the educational odyssey that I went on when I was a rookie coach traveling around the country uh, to observe, to be a fly on the wall uh, with the likes of Butch Harmon, David Ledbetter, Chuck Cook, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. Randy Smith here locally. And then the, the understanding that came from that, that, wow, they're changing the way they're talking. They're changing the nonverbals. They're changing their position given the point that they're trying to make. And they're using kind of like a multidimensional, many layers deep in the tools and tactics to try and maybe get something very simple done. So that would be the first level of learning. And the second level of learning, which is probably the most impactful level of learning, is the mistakes that we make. Just the trial and error, the experiential stuff that you'll go through when you're teaching, as I was as a rookie coach, somewhere between 1,800 to 2,200 lesson hours a year. Um, so making it your full-time job is a way to accelerate your learning curve. But to say accelerate is probably a stretch. It's still a long learning curve, a learning curve that uh, Mac, you are, and, and Leo, you are, and I am on still to this day. The process that, that, that I have and continue to go through at the end of the day is a big learning process as well, where driving home or as I'm writing my client files, the, the, the lesson notes that I keep as every good coach should keep on their um, interactions with individual athletes and also their teams is a reflection on how successful you were and an ability to make sure that you're not resting on your, or your laurels, whatever those laurels may be, whatever those successes may be, that you're, even though you might have had a good session or a good day with your team, that you're out there trying to go through this process of reflection to self-improve. 
So observation, experience, reflection, that cycle should be ever operational. It should always be on, never off. And the times when it's off are the times you're stagnant, the times you're not learning. Because from that reflection, that then will dictate the gaps, the blind spots that you find that you have as a coach, and then the knowledge acquisition and kind of direction you go to try and improve your skills, whether those skills are the hard skills of ball flight lowers or biomechanics or skills of psychology, et cetera, or whether the soft skills, the one we start that, started this question with, which is the interpersonal stuff, the, the most you know, important soft skills of relating to someone, that they're all necessary to be on that road to mastery, on that road to becoming an expert. Mm, that's so interesting you say that because we uh, we did a podcast with Chris Mason and he said the exact same thing. He mm-hmm. actually said he doesn't read a lot when he's coaching a lot, but he reflects uh, in his mind after a full day. It's almost like mental journaling. Is that how you see it? Do you write it down as well? Yeah, so I write down uh, fairly extensive notes on the X's and the O's of a client interaction whether that's a technical session or a skills-based session or um, just observational stuff from the golf course, competitive play. But at the same time, I'm also reflecting as I'm writing that those things down on the gaps in my performance. And then that serves as a note document that I've got going on that might inform goals or might inform objectives that I've got for a long period of time. Over the next year, I want to be better at X or over the next week, I want to be better at Y. And Chris Mason is a good example of someone that I didn't even touch on this, the presence of a coach. Chris has great presence. Um, It's how you dress. It's how you look. It's how you speak. It's how you walk. And that is such an important piece of garnering the respect and having a appearance of authority that then backs up the knowledge that you have that says to the person standing in front of you or the team that's standing in front of you, you're in the right place. Like you can, you can walk into uh, UCLA and go through the, their athletic department and look at all the NCAA championships, the 120-ish that they've won, uh, of which I was there three or four years ago as part of a study tour to, to try and uh, kick tires and, and, and test the water on what was so right or so good there. But really beyond those accolades, beyond the skills on the wall, really what makes UCLA or a place like UCLA or organization um, like, like UGP Great is what happens when people are working together and the experience that you give people, which you guys so well described in the, the preface to this, to this uh, recording here about your business model, about the experience that you're um, designing and delivering to your clients. And there are a multitude of facets that um, we're probably forgetting in this conversation, but for the coaches out there, don't forget about presence, about the way you dress and the way you walk and the way you talk just in social conversation, just in general conversation with people that either are your clients or may in future become your clients. And so self-awareness seems so important. And I, what I what I tend to find a lot when, when we're training new coaches is they they struggle with that concept, you know, that they now have to be highly acutely aware of themselves. And so mm-hmm. what happens is I, I've noticed, and same maybe in instruction when you're working with a any any level of player where you make them self-aware and then confidence drops because now they're doubting themselves and 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 whatnot. What what are your thoughts on on that on that process of becoming self-aware or before they were like, I didn't know I was slumped over in my posture while I was in an interview. And we'll take a picture of them and be like, look at yourself. And they're like, I can't believe I look like that. 
and you know yeah. or they'll they'll we'll, we'll record a session which a lot of a lot of our new staff would get really they get really uptight and they get nervous and they feel like it's invasive for us to video record their sessions when they're coaching a client and i'm like they do it in the mm-hmm. nba they do it in the nfl like that's how you you're, you're filming and we're gonna go back and sit down and look at it and and yeah, they I don't get over it, right? yeah they feel insecure <laughs> and then they they become self-aware they're con- i mean it's almost it's 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 one out of three people we hire they go through this process of doubt and they get insecure and we have to like bring them we we drop them to the ground and then we we build them back up again mm-hmm. what 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 are your thoughts on that and then that process of kind of yeah there's a lot of directions we could go <laughs> in like discussing that question or that that concept of self-awareness and is it a good thing is it a bad thing i think ultimately it's a, it's a very good thing but let me kind of go to the back end of that statement that you made there are two systems that we're operating in you've got present awareness and you've got like this operating system at the back that we'll call an extra you that's ever present monitoring what's going on and these two systems aren't combative at all they're working concurrently i think the rookie coaches that you're talking about filming and exposing to this is the matter this is what you present within your coaching sessions probably get a little bit tied up in that system of process that's going on in the background. And that becomes kind of their default operating system, if you will. So they're interacting with a client, but at the same time, they realize they're performing. And that performance is being monitored. It's being monitored for a specific reason, for review. And maybe they're framing that review as a threat. And the easiest way for them to get beyond what's going on in the periphery being the most primary and important consideration versus the most primary important consideration, the performance with the client in front of them. The the easiest way to flip that is to turn it from a threat into an opportunity. So turn it from a threat into something that I should be doing myself. And this is just a means of feedback, just like we would be providing feedback to our clients in the form of track man data, in the form of observations that then we describe using words and, and pictures, observations that we would convey with guided rehearsals or demonstrations as coaches. So I think that's the biggest stumbling block with rookie coaches as it relates to learning is the fear of the threat that comes with um, exposing themselves to the vulnerability of not being expert yet. We all have concerns. We all are fragile in some way, um, but leaning into that fragility, leaning into the fact that you can only be the best version of yourself that currently exists. So be that person and present that way, but use tools and tactics that help you become better. And those tools and tactics are reviewing performances, just as you guys as a best practice are doing. Mm -hmm. So Cameron, I want to ask you about kind of the current state of the, you know, golf instruction world, because I I feel like there's been this kind of, you know, different faces, right? So if you look back, like kind of old school, you know, coaching the game, Harvey Penick, that type of era, then going into, you know, technology kind of taking over and we get very technical. And I, I hear a lot of really good coaches now recently starting to talk again about, you know, style and and technique is not correlated with performance. And I, I think that you're pretty much agreeing with that concept do you have any small details about the game with each player that you feel like okay this is 
some must-haves, like technique-wise. Yeah, right? we'll dive because into the, into the middle of that question first. Yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm, ag- I'm agnostic to style. I, I've, I've always been a coach that, well, not always. I was a player that prioritized technique as the foundation for improving one's skill. And I'll come back to that. Uh, I then became a coach that did the same thing, prioritized technique as the foundation of a player improving their performance. I realized pretty quickly that that alone as the only value offering fell short of fulfilling, for the most part, each person's goal as they stepped in front of me to hit better shots and shoot lower scores. So I had to evolve as a coach. I had to have a playbook that ran deeper than just being able to modify and form to serve two purposes, move golf ball from A to B, but also meet a set of preferences that I had as a coach that were born out of my own experience as a player, Mm. self-coaching myself. Uh, But to say that I don't prioritize at this day uh, style or technique would be also wrong as well. It's the primary reason that a player can achieve a certain outcome, which is uh, solid contact, a functional face to path, and mm. the necessary velocity, club speed, that would produce the outcome they're looking for, which is which is a shot on target or pretty close to target. So then going to the front end of your point of this evolution of golf, golf coaching, I think to compartmentalize and say that old school coaching is different than new school coaching or to put them both on an island uh, of their own and say they're combative to one another or disagree with one another is also wrong. Uh, I think that what you're looking at there is just a difference in means given available resources. So there weren't available resources back in the 60s and 70s or even prior to that. You had your own feels as a player, what you could observe with your eyes, and then you had an extra resource, maybe another person watching you. But absent that, there's very, very little uh, opportunity to receive feedback. And that meant that the whole loop of error, correction, and then trying to bridge the gap between that error and outcome was clouded. The, the feedback was not clear. What technology has provided us and what it continues to provide us is a far more clear pathway between what are the outcomes, what are the errors that are due to the golfer, golfer-born or golfer-owned error, versus what are the errors that are uh, some things that are out of our control, uh, whether that be environmental or uh, tactical which I guess you could argue they're certainly not control, and I would agree with that as I make that statement. So that's what technology is providing us. But to say that a coach, a modern coach, uh, a coach that's 25 years old, who's cutting their teeth, learning to be the best coach they can and should be, shouldn't be using uh, the same methods that you, you raised Harvey Pennick's name, that Harvey Pennick used back in his heyday of coaching to be a very effective coach, to develop uh, players to the best of their ability would also be wrong. But to say that Harvey Panic is who you should model your uh, coaching journey, your career arc after is also wrong because you'd be turning a blind eye to the ability to be far more efficient as a coach, wouldn't you? You'd be saying, I'm not going to worry about ball flight laws. I'm not going to worry about the deep plane. I'm not going to worry about uh, the modern enhancements and ability to fit a person correctly. I'm not going to worry about the anatomy and the, the, the structural constraints that a player, that every human is going to differ on. Uh, those things would be foolish, wouldn't they? So I think that to be the best version of yourself as a coach, you need to take it all on 
and be able to filter through it uh, efficiently and use it just in that experiential capacity that I talked about developing interpersonal skills to know what are the high mileage plays? What are the things that are most effective out of your bag of tricks that you're carrying over your shoulder when you go to the driving range figuratively to get the job done? So it's not a here nor there in my mind. It's use it all and use it to the best of your ability. Know that in some circumstances, one tool or tactic is going to be far more effective than another. Sometimes it might be extrinsic. Sometimes it might be intrinsic. Sometimes it might be exposing someone to an understanding of technology that helps them self-coach because that's the, the, the whole role of the goal that you should have as a coach is to build a level of redundancy into your knowledge and expertise. Know that the things that you teach today should be different than the things you teach two years from now to the same person. If they're not, then someone's not doing their job. Yeah. This whole process, this whole cyclical nature of um, recommendation and improvement is ineffective in some way. Yeah, that's so, that's so insightful. You know, one, one thing that we talk about a lot, and, and this goes back to, you know, one of our value systems is community as part of performance development. And I know you guys are strong there with Altus, like on, on that same mindset. And where that comes from is that like, I would always see golf instructors like on the end of a range giving like the same lesson over and over again in the corner and nobody could see what they were doing. It was all secretive. And I, I remember I was like, I, you know, some, some lessons would help and I'd get some drills that would help and I would, you know, make some advancements. But the thing that helped the most was really my practice group, my peer group. And wanting to beat them and we would just go play and we'd compete all the time and we were all pretty good players and little by little we just all get better same in college having the other guys to compete against the level would go up and that competition that peer group we would be like coaching each other and we would also be competing with each other so there's like love and love and hate like combined to really kind of sure. push us forward mm -hmm. and so and I, as we were building our academy the mindset that we had was like hey we need to make that inherent in how this place feels it's hard with the masses. It's hard with the novice golfer, but let's make it be where people feel like they're part of this community. And there's this almost like this, like you're on a high school golf team kind of feel to it. And we're all just in this, you know, in this pool where we're pushing each other to improve. And it's almost, it's hard to describe because it's like in the layers of the experience rather than just saying, Hey, there's this, there's this formula. So can you talk a bit about how you guys do that at Altus? I always see the kids all out there competing against each other. It seems like there's a really great community that you've created. Yeah, there are many reasons why community is beneficial to uh, growing skill and becoming better at doing what you're doing. You have ever-present sounding boards to your success or lack thereof, and that in turn can be nice fuel as an athlete for improvement to hold you accountable to the words that you speak, those words being, are you getting by or are you getting better? And if you show up, um, it'd be far easier to show up alone to a driving range, alone to a practice session and feel like you're getting better. But in reality, you're just getting by because you don't have the means to self-assess your uh, improvement over that hour or two hour practice session. But yet when you're surrounded by a coach or coaches and players that, that have the same goal orientation, they want to become the best that they can possibly become then you have others around you that are holding you accountable to that improvement. Mm -hmm. And that's a nice thing to know that you're part of a community or as we would call it here, a tribe that are doing everything in their power individually and collectively uh, to get better is also beneficial. There's a ton of research behind it, how people uh, get better at once on their own, but 
you're adding further fuel to that fire and accelerating that 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 journey, that improvement arc, if you are doing it with other people. Mm-hmm. So the sessions that we have are groups of four, groups of five that uh, have objectives in mind, uh, individual objectives and team objectives. They are very collaborative, sometimes combative, and both of those things are very, very important. But so I'll go a different direction now and not knowing how to fit this in other than to go to the interviews that we conduct on our podcast where we're interviewing the best players in the world and researchers and authors and littered throughout those conversations when we ask the question, what do you recall about your experience as a youth player and how does that differ to your experience as a world-class X, whether that's golfer or motorcycle racer or tennis player, et cetera, or author. And those experiences are far more described as competitive, far more described as leaning into difficulty than they are friendly and safe. Uh, than they are um, doing things that <clears throat> a person feels confident and comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to kind of the two ways that you could, I guess, conduct your own evolution, skill evolution, no matter what you're trying to get better at. We could do the things that are easy first and feel satisfied. Uh, we could only do the things that are easy and feel super satisfied that we, we were accomplished. But it's really on the other side of the difficult stuff that improvement happens because you recognize where the gaps are and crowds help that meaning a peer group, a tribe, a community help that. And and without that, you're left to your own devices. And most people, it takes a long time to develop that process of being able to use the word again, as used before, reflect Mm -hmm. the, the cognitive process of, yeah, did I really do well in that skill test or in that performance? Because, uh, every time you're out there practicing, it's performance. Every time you're coaching, it's performance. Every time you're sitting down to uh, achieve some end, you're trying to perform and you're trying to perform to the best of your ability. So that's why we believe, and it's echoed throughout research and it's echoed through anecdotal uh, conversations that we have with the people I was describing in our podcast, that those things shouldn't be just additive. They should be, as you described, a foundation. Mm-hmm. They should be woven in, woven into the fabric to where it's, the what's a good expression for it's the base state Mm -hmm. it's just what happens at your place of work or your place of practice so on that note how do you how do you assess how do you assess talent in golf coach and in a player like your primary what are you looking for in those two categories yeah so start with the golf coach assessing talent i don't think talent is something you necessarily assess for you're assessing uh, character traits and those character traits would inform the development of talent or skill. So you can teach skills, but character is a really hard thing to shape. So in assessing character, you're assessing uh, inventiveness. What innovation out of a coach that I'm considering to hire or I'm looking to collaborate with, even if it's not a hiring relationship, has that person demonstrate or willing to demonstrate? What work ethic, what action uh, versus words are they demonstrating? Also, the last thing you want when you're looking to collaborate with someone, whether it's a working relationship or just as a, as a kind of a peer group check, which you need as a coach, is an echo chamber. You want uh, creative disagreement. So a willingness to be the square peg to the round hole is something I also look for. 
So I guess it all boils down to contribution and desire to become better than yourself. You're willing to work hard and you're willing to become a better version of yourself. And what does that look like uh, from a tactic to get to that end is up to the person, but it's certainly something that we can, we can do as well. On the athlete side, it's a willingness to do the hard work. Again, the conversations that we have with, with experts in many fields boil down to, I just wasn't willing to stop. I, I recognized that there was going to be a whole lot of mundanity each day looking the same. But I knew that on the other side of hard work, on the other side of calloused hands, on the other side of bleeding hands, and on the other side of sweat was improvement, was a better version of me where I could um, do something I formerly couldn't do. And that's the foundation of the, I guess, things that you're sorting for when you're trying to identify with this, whether this person can move higher or climb the development ladder, if you will. Did so you see that? Sorry to interrupt. Did you see yeah. that with Jordan Spieth at 12 years old when you started working with him? Did, what was some of the things that you saw? Like, okay, this guy, you know, he won't stop. Yeah. So the hard work was evident from the start. The hard work was evident when you interviewed him. The hard work was evident when you talked to his parents or his peers around him as well. The self-awareness, which you've already touched on, the ability to know that, hey, I can be better, but I can't be better largely on my own. I need to seek out the knowledge and seek out the, the, the resource from someone else who's already gone to where I want to go. And that takes a, man, it takes a, a, a person who's willing to give a little bit to get a lot, right? Mm. So someone that's stubborn may not necessarily be quite as open to receiving advice and coaching from others. So you have to shelve that stubbornness. You've got to be, you've got to have a good learner's mindset, um, as is popularly described. And you've got to have a good filter as well, being able to know that there is kind of a timeline. So you take on an idea, and Jordan did this really well. You take on an idea, and you know that it needs to yield some sort of result within a reasonable period of time before you recognize that I, that idea is maybe past its shelf life or it never was a good idea uh, for me. And he was very good at that as a very young adolescent kid. And so those are the, that's another one of those markers, the ability to filter, but it also an ability to kind of shelve my identity for the greater good of me, improving me, meaning not being some, being open, being willing to, Carol Dreck wouldn't call it growth mindset, right? You guys are very familiar with mm-hmm. that. And at the same time, a determination and, and a mental fortitude to uh, compartmentalize new ideas from who you are and how you operate really, really well. And, and Jordan and the rest of the high-performance players that I've had the pleasure of working with over the last 25 years have, uh, have demonstrated that. The stumbling blocks that players have fallen into that have either demonstrated less of those capacities or they've demonstrated just as much but have fallen by the wayside on their growth towards high-performance uh, can be boiled down to distraction and, and boiled down to loss of identity, getting their identity tied up in sometimes other things that are unrelated to them improving their, their sports skills. The loss of direction that's associated with that, but also the distraction that comes with the shiny new thing. Yeah. And you, you guys have got to face the shiny new thing, right? The shiny new thing that comes along when someone's doing something and having great success where formerly you thought they wouldn't have success. And so you go, you go and do that shiny new thing as well. And I recognize it's a double-edged sword because I just described the attitude of willingness to take on new ideas and road test the durability of them. Yeah. But then on the other side of that is, well, how do I sort whether that shiny new idea is for me? And really as a player, as a parent out there, 
And that's a player at any level. That's a player that's 40 years old who's been playing tour-level golf for 20 years. We're not immune to that shiny new idea catching us. But having filters around you, which is the, going back to the, the conversation on community is so important. I mean, ability to talk to someone you're an expert coach. Can I take this idea to you and say, hey, do you think this is something that's good for me? And it becomes a collaborative approach where you get to uh, what does the greatest good for you as a player or um, whoever you're advising. I think it's a really interesting topic because, I mean, you know, and I hope there's a lot of young competitive golfers out there listening because I, I think that there's a lot to learn in terms of consistency. You know, you our first episode was with Rick Sessinghouse and Colin Markov on it was interesting to see you're talking about the difficulty of the balance, right? For a competitive young golfer to figure out, should I stay with this coach for life or should I jump around? And we see a lot of jumping around or stay with equipment or stay with swing ideas. Or swing yeah. Fields. It's, yeah. you know, it's tricky. And huh? what I was impressed about, because it, I think it's a good example, Colin and Rick worked since Colin was eight years old and Rick was the only guy. 16 years of golf instruction but then now also a mental coach you know couldn't be a better guy for for a guy like Colin and they came to us almost two years ago asking for help with fitness and I I think that young competitive players can learn from how they approach that new kind of interest is they were very conservative you know from the beginning they were interested and they were analyzing what I was telling them right this is what I see in my analysis and assessment. But then after that, it was very conservative in the beginning to figure out, okay, is this working? Do I like it? Do I like the, the vibe and mm -hmm. the dynamic? Can I jump in real quick? Yeah. It's awesome that you're describing it this way. And I'll toss, we just had an interview with, with Eddie Pepperell and asked him a very similar question in terms of how do you kind of sort ideas and view your coaching career. And he said, I used to view myself as the shopping cart. And the coach was pushing the shopping cart and filling it up on the shelves with whatever he wanted to fill up. And he said, over time, 2016, 2017, and then to now, he's viewed the relationship in reverse, where he's the one pushing the shopping cart and he's the one picking off the shelves, the shelves being the strength and conditioning resources, the, the coaching that he's receiving. And he'll pick off the shelves what he feels like is applicable currently and what's going to benefit him the most. So he's taking real ownership of that. And that sounds like a, a very responsible way that you're describing Colin, Colin and Rick have gone about their journey to better, their journey to excellent, right? Yeah, and I think you know it's also Rick putting the ego aside and saying, hey, I'm not an expert in everything. And so let's very carefully figure out who we can, you know, get help on putting, fitness, and all these different areas. It was like, okay, you want to hit it further, and we were very much on the same page. Is like, let's not change something drastically here. Let's make sure we get the foundation down, and we we created a, a solid plan. But then it was like, let's add five yards a year on the driver. It was mm -hmm. very long term because there was not a need to change anything drastically physically. So I think, I think that there's something to learn there for, for, you know, you just explained, there's so many, so much to get confused by yeah. and to navigate through. And, and I think that, you know, the question is, are you better off almost staying with the same person, even though not everything you do is great mm -hmm. because of the value of consistency? 
Yeah, don't undervalue consistency, definitely. I would give you a quote, and the quote comes from Scott Galloway. I'm not too sure where he uh, he got it from, but he, he says, agency is the, uh, sorry, greatness is in the agency of others. And that is so true, right? You only know what you know as a player. You only know what you know as a coach. You need to lean on others around you. But the perspective that you're offering is true as well, that don't undervalue consistency and know that when a person like Rick uh, sets his ego aside and recognizes that I don't have all of the answers, but where I don't have the answers, I'm going to go find them with you or without you to help you. Uh, then that shows great strength as well. Uh, shows great strength to admit that. And that's the sort of coach that people should be out there finding a coach that's willing to be uh, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, but also, also ride shotgun with the athlete, right? The athlete's driving the car or driving the car and mm. the coach is riding shotgun and they're going to pick up passengers along the way. And that passenger in the strength and conditioning realm was, was you guys and that passenger in putting or in, 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 in developing other areas of, of Colin's game might be uh, X, Y, and Z down the road. But when you find someone like that, know that you've got an advocate, uh, a person that's always going to be having your best interest as a player at heart. So a, a quick question again about going back to Jordan and kind of what you saw early on uh, or in any other player, you know, if there's any young competitive players out there listening that might not know what hard work actually means, you know, what, you know, what's the definition of that? Like, you know, 10 hours a day, what are some examples? You know, we had James O on another great coach and he said how I see it. And when I realize, okay, this, this guy or girl has potential is when I ask them to go, try and do this 20 times they come back and they do it 200 times exactly. what are some examples that jordan spieth did that you realize okay this is a hard worker and how can a young competitive golfer learn what hard work is yeah i, I could tell stories about number of balls i could tell stories about number of hours but for me hard work is demonstrated in just what you described i asked him to go to 100 and he came back and did 2000 it's a willingness to uh overfill uh, the cup, so to speak. It's a willingness to be the first one at the golf course or the first one at the gym and the last one to leave. It's a willingness to recognize that you're going to wake up the day after a very, very hard training session, super sore. Two days later, have a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness, but you're willing to tear tissue again in the gym. You're going to open up those same scabs that uh, will eventually tell us on your hands because you're hitting so many balls in integration of a new movement. You're going to do the soft stuff, the stuff that does not seem like it has any return on investment in reading and, and, and meditation, if that's what your coach is recommending, your, your mm. sports side, your game improvement guys recommending. You're going to eat humble pie and not hit driver when your coach said, this is a hole that you're going to make the same score when you, when you change to this tactic, even though the tactic feels like you're being far more conservative. A willingness to try things that others around you are recommending that goes against the grain that you feel as a player are completely opposite to what your DNA, what your automated response would be producing. But you, you, you know, you have this blind faith, this trust in the people that are advising you. That's just as much a recipe of a hard worker, a person that's willing to do, do it as much as the, the, the calluses and the, and the volume mm -hmm. of practice. 
Mm. What do you think, Cameron, about, you know, just shifting here about, you know, physical ability and instruction? Can you talk about what you look for when you see a player that, say, you're trying to, you know, approach a certain kind of move or you're trying to change the way that they move? And how, how do you how do you view their physicality and, and, and what do you get into there? Well, certainly an ability to move in a certain way, joint range of motion, flexibility is a precursor uh, or it's a it's a rate limiter to integration so a coach needs to have an ability to assess those things whether that's your own knowledge and experience because you've been through the necessary learning to be able to assess and and therefore map a course through it if it's something that can be remedied in some level of intervention whether that's a stretching intervention or a soft tissue intervention or a strength and conditioning uh, in the gym uh, or what chart a journey around that limitation if it seems like the um, available time to invest for the player in front of you and the time to go through this corrective these corrective steps is just far too great and you've got to map a journey around it uh, so if you can give me a set of constraints and a, a visual and help me visualize a problem i can try and target the specific issue but that's a very general way to just say hey as a coach you need to know these things as a coach to to, to know that you can shift Face angles and swing planes and rotations is what is nice, but know that eventually you're going to get a case if the case isn't already in front of you where you'll try those tools and they'll fall, fall short of being effective only because the player can't do what you're trying to do. In front right. Of you. So what what do you tell your what do you tell your juniors? You know, my dad used to tell me a lot when I was getting into golf, 12, 13 years old. He's like, you got to keep cross training and. And I tore my ACL playing basketball, and so it's just <laughs> <laughs> come on, man. You know what do you what do you tell your juniors about you know about about other sports? You know, I'm just I have a six year old son named Sevi actually, and he's really good little player, and he's into every sport, and he loves. I mean, he's just loving what I love. He loves basketball. He's, we've been watching The Last Dance, and some of it. This last couple episodes were pretty inappropriate with the whole Dennis Rodman. He was just like, what is that guy's deal? And like, <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, he's actually a small town boy from Oklahoma. And <laughs> but we, yeah, <laughs> what do you, it's, it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice that two different channels are offering the X rated version or sorry, the R rated version and like the, the general consumption version where all the cuss words and yeah, profane stuff is taken. I, out, I, right? I show him the whole thing just to <laughs> get him to get yeah. learn. Uh, there you go. <laughs> what, do, what do you think? Like, what do you? What are your thoughts on on kind of you know getting him into jujitsu now? Because that was recommended by Will Wu, and he was saying how his son, you know, Kingston did that, and and so I'm just kind of like playing around, and he loves every sport. I'm building his touch in different things, even even crumpling trash and throwing it into a trash can. I feel like he's athletically developing, so it's just exactly you know, yeah. I mean, cross training is fantastic, isn't it? And you just described a few of them in that short um, introduction to the question. Uh, yeah, the value of cross training can't be undervalued, um, can't be diminished. So, for athletes out there and parents out there that might be listening, the exposure is super important. But at the same time, I think that uh, take, for example, Lexi Thompson, take, for example, Rory McElroy, there are just two cases of players that expressed very early on that, hey, this is, mom and dad, this is what I want to do. Um, and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't necessarily expose your kids or kids to uh, cross-training abilities, but they may not be formalized training. It may not be formalized engagement in uh, mm -hmm. jujitsu or in crumpled paper tossing in trash cans or basketball so to avoid breaking the ACL. <laughs> uh, so th there, there, there are certain benefits that are certainly going to come from 
exposure to things that are going to develop athletic skills that are complementary to golf. But there are certain risks inherent in that. You just described the risk that you faced and the consequence of taking that risk, which is a torn ACL. So uh, know that you can learn to throw. Know that you can learn to be very, very agile. And those athletic skills can then translate into golf without playing contact sports, Mm -hmm. uh, without playing football and basketball. I'm disadvocating in favor or, sorry, against those sports. I love those sports. But at the same time, there's this risk uh, reward this cost benefit analysis that you've got to um, uh, weigh as as athletes and as parents. Exactly. Well, you know when like they talk about on on the same topic, <laughs> I guess like in competition this this concept of competition. I'm just curious on what your thoughts are because a lot of the research shows you know as you know long term athletic development. They talk about you know it, don't really get them competing really until they're 12 and stuff like that. And we've we've talked to a lot of different coaches and there's there's disagreements on that. And so. My son loves winning like already since he was four, three or four. He was just like, I love the idea of winning and like having a trophy and and yeah. and he hates losing just as much as he loves winning. So we, we mm-hmm. I mean, he'll sob over just like a little silly game and then he'll just celebrate wildly. And so, you know, it's like they already know. So what what are your thoughts on on kind of when is the time? You know, they talk about, like, oh, just get them used to winning. When, what, what, what are your thoughts on levels of competition, when they should start mm-hmm. competing, you know, and everything else around that? A competence, those experiences, if I can, whether that's a trophy or whether that's a personal best performance, finishing third against players or against other teams that you might be competing against, uh, is just massively important to fuel continued engagement in whatever activity you're, you're um, pursuing. So. I go back to a conversation recently we had with Matt Wallace on the podcast where he said he was playing team sports. He was over in England playing cricket and rugby, et cetera, maybe even some um, football, European football, so soccer. And he said, I was just so frustrated as a mid-teenager, 14, 15 years old, because I wanted to win so bad. And I would be just an ass on the field because the other players around me didn't share that same passion for wanting to succeed. And so I was this dictatorial captain on the rugby team or the cricket team barking orders and uh, they thought I was an absolute butthead and that's when he recognized that he can control his own destiny in an individual sport and that's why he took to golf and a much more kind of like um, high investment level specialized level um, but you've got to be able to read your kid and you've got to be able to read the kid that's coaching uh, that you're sorry that you're coaching to know when the right time to make that recommendation is you talked about long-term athletic development and we uh, initiated this kind of discussion right now with a perspective on if you're engaged in other activities that then turn teach you physical skills to be better at our chosen sport, which is golf. That's great. But what else is coming along with that long-term athletic development? It's the social skills and the psychological skills that you're going to be learning by being a part of a team or being part of a group, even if it's just in training to where you're learning the physical skills, but you're opting out of the high physical contact matchups in basketball or ice hockey or football that ultimately could land you in a greater risk pool for the torn ACL as you're exposed to. Um, so weighing and balancing those things is super important, but so there are other conversations. Webb Simpson's a recent one as well, where he talked about the benefit of teamwork and the teamwork that now he feels like he shares with Paul Tesori on the bag and he's, let's say, other people around him, part of the, the Webb Simpson team. 
And he learned those things by being part of a team in recreational adolescent sports. So the list is greater than your length of your arm, the things that are going to be a benefit coming out of uh, participating in other teams. So it's, it's, it's purely on the, the, the subject of the actual, the actual kid himself or herself really, really about like when the right time to compete and the concept of winning and losing and everything like that, it's, it's, it's purely going to be based on the kid. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I guess moreover the choice to specialize, the choice to participate in X, Y, and Z other activities to hope with hope that they're going to uh, benefit me in some other way that's going to help me with golf, certainly. But in terms of like the matrix or the, 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 the match of competition that allows me to have uh, levels of success that cause enthusiasm, cause joy, cause positive experience versus the times when you walk with your tail between your legs because you realize you bit off a little, little too much, you bit off more than you could chew, whether that's because of the length of the golf course, the caliber of competition uh, that you're playing against. It certainly needs to be much closer to two-thirds positive experience to one-third, maybe even a heavier ratio in particularly with early athletes where the experience is heavily stacked in a positive direction. But even the youngest kids need an example of, okay, there's something I can do to get better. They need experiences of, okay, I wasn't successful here. And then that turns as a parent or even as a kid or as a coach into a learning opportunity or a teaching moment where you're like, okay, Here's how you get better at that. If you want to, it's your choice, but I can show you there's a couple of things that you need to do to master that shot so that when you're in that circumstance next time, you can be successful, whether that circumstance is an individual shot or a, or a tournament against a bigger competition. But you're heavily stacked in favor of proficiency and success. I'm a massive uh, fan of you know the, the cross-training topic because... I have a background in table tennis and Mac knows this. I, I recommend every golfer to play table tennis because I think it's one of the best kind of transfers to golf because this learning spin dynamics, the, the, the paddle is so close to your right or mm -hmm. left hand, the ball looks the same and all these things. So I love and we love unconventional ways to kind of improve your performance. So, you know, we talked to Jamie Mulligan about you know, we have a lot of beginners or, or new golfers and they never maybe played sports growing up or they never played golf. So we almost have to reverse engineer hand-eye coordination, all these things. And so what are some ways where we can expedite that process? And we talked about, you know, I have this theory of like every good golfer can bounce the ball on the, on the wedge and every bad golfer can't. Mm -hmm. And there's a question of chicken and egg there. So... Should we do unconventional things like that where a beginner might sh should maybe try and, and learn to bounce the ball on the, on the wedge and that will improve their wedge game or club face awareness faster than, than, than only working on club face awareness with drills in, in, in the bay? Yeah, maybe not necessarily an either or, maybe not the best, meaning I'll go back to expression I'll, I used earlier, the highest of knowledge plays to teach face awareness. Yeah. Um, Moreover, a higher mileage play to teach face awareness would be a, a flat paddle sport. So you just described table tennis. I think it's a fantastic uh, cross-training opportunity. Another one is tennis. Another one is squash. Another one is racquetball. Another one is cricket. Another one is hockey. 
So there are a wide range of different sports or different activities you can be doing. Or right now, when you're kind of confined to your backyard, badminton is an absolutely mm -hmm. amazing cross-training sport uh, where you're also developing hand speed. Mm -hmm. And hand speed being one of the biggest force multipliers, particularly in a, in a male population or male population golfers, that causes men to swing faster than women, hand speed and wrist speed, by a factor, I think, of uh, three to one. Wow. So men create three times more club speed from the um, gain in wrist speed or wow. hand speed than women do. Uh, Fact-checking on that if you've got a fact-check section at the back end of this podcast. But nonetheless, going back to alternative means to cross-train, you know, one comes from Fred, Fred Shoemaker that comes to mind in terms of like the coordinative skills that need to be reverse engineered. You're building the, the, the foundation after the roof's already on, right? And that's eyes closed. You've got a club in your hand and you're spinning the club in your hand and then just reapplying your grip, you're reapplying the, the contact down to the grip securely. And before opening your eyes, you're guessing where the center of the mass of the club is or essentially where the club face is because the center of mass will inform where that club face is. And that's yeah. a fantastic coordinative skill to start to develop the feel through your hands of where the face is in space. Um, confined to home, maybe you don't want to hit the plastic golf balls and make marks on the wall. Take a, a flat plastic ball marker and then knock the pin that would keep it fixed to the ground if it was kind of plugged down into a green off and use that as your landing point precision task or flip a tee where the pointy end of the tee is facing the leading edge of the club and use that as your landing point task to develop, many would call it low point, but it's really not low point, it's first touch. It's where the club's interacting with the ground, which essentially would be hopefully the back of the ball or just a little bit uh, post back of the ball. Develop that ability to land the club correctly because that's one of the greatest face control and landing the club precisely, the two greatest skills that prevent a very average or beginning golfer from feeling proficient that they can make solid contact without being embarrassed and advance it sort of within the kind of the foul poles, uh, mm. whether that's the, the rough or the fairway. So where you can accelerate the development or the, yeah, the development of those coordinative skills, those two foundational coordinative skills with some cross-training activities, I think you as a coach are going to be far more effective than the coach down the street that doesn't have those things. Mm. And that's going to be a, a a unique selling proposition as well, something that differentiates you that you can take beginning golfers and advance them where they feel like really successful um, and they're not going to be embarrassed. To go to golf I would have been a lot better off playing ring toss than playing basketball in high school, it sounds like. Exactly. shooting around, Because right? <laughs> I guess the question is, if time is kind of limited, you have a 15 handicapper, which is very common, you know, you know should they spend time doing this? And, and yeah. we always argue yes, because, you know, if you can't even hold a wedge stationary at zero degrees parallel to the ground, how are you going to control that? Because, you know, it's easy to test that, right? You just hold a, a 60 degree wedge and uh, you ask them to do that and you put the ball on, on the wedge and it rolls off. Well, then you can't really control that face at zero miles per hour. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to do it at 90? So I think yeah. that's an interesting topic. And I love the badminton because it makes a lot of sense, like just ripping badminton swings at home, you know, because <laughs> like you're saying, the, the problem that most golfers face is they don't understand 
especially if you didn't grow up playing golf, you, you didn't naturally, you were not naturally forced to create lag or, or that whipping motion. Mm-hmm. And so anything we can do, I feel like that can mimic that or, or get people to understand the sequencing without really being conscious of what they're doing, we're going in the right direction, right? Yeah. I, and there are many examples that I think of a few of the Korean girls that I've had a chance to work with or continue to work with, or just to chatted with that play LPGA tour golf that was specialized into golf from a very, very early age and developed into world-class players. We're talking major champions and successful winners on the LPGA tour that are, um, there are just a couple of Korean examples that come to mind that can't throw and catch. Right. So fundamental movement skills, movement skills that you would think are precursors to proximal to distal sequencing and also going all the way to the distal end, the sequencing in the trail, their throwing arm, if they're throwing with the same side as their would be their trail arm on the golf club, you would think, hmm, they're going to be compromised in terms of the segmental sequencing, lower body to upper body, and they're going to be compromised in terms of their ability to retain energy out into the club head, but yet they're not. And so they learned it in a very context specific way just Mm. as it relates to golf but then didn't reverse engineer back into throwing does it make Mm -hmm. sense yeah did they early specialize most of the kids we're talking six or seven years old they're early specialized but yet they were able to develop that capacity absent a similar quote-unquote foundational movement skill so it's there but it's not there in a specific domain which is the throwing and catching that's so the coordinative ability of catch, catching, right? Now, how is that beneficial to golf? Well, um, some may say it is, some may say it's not. But I'm not debating the, in fact, I'm fully advocating in favor of the, the cross-training and you know, ways and means, particularly when you're talking about, you mentioned it, recreational golfers. is 168 hours in a week, right? And there are so many other activities going on that for the most part, two times a month, a person's going to dedicate four hours to go out and play. Well, how much practice time is that going to enable them to to um kind of chisel out of that 168 hours in a week maybe a couple at max so we need to have things that are really effective to develop those skills even without going to the golf course so this covid19 this self-quarantine that's caused us as coaches to have to become better at conveying concepts and prescribing actions or activities that someone could do at home is probably the best thing for those that are teaching recreational players to do things at home to improve those coordinative skills so that we, they, when they get back out to the range of the golf course, they're like, whoa, I'm actually better because of this. Yeah, and it's fun too. Yeah, definitely fun. So Cameron, we, we typically finish this podcast with a couple of questions and they're just, they're really, they're really silly questions that sort of don't really have an answer. And I, that's why we like doing it. Better player, uh, better player, Annika Sorenstam or Lorena Ochoa? Oh, Annika Starnstam, but Lorena Cho was uh, early, ripe, and fantastic, and then took herself out of the uh, out of the conversation. So, yeah, I, I, Annika. Yeah, great. The reason why I asked this question is because I'm from Sweden, and and, and Mac is from Texas, and and Mexico, basically Tex-Mex. <laughs> so yeah. the second question is <laughs> Jordan Spieth or Stenson. Oh gosh! <laughs> <laughs> you could just see you could I'd, see our arguments that go. I'd be voted off the island. But, <laughs> yeah. Jordan, so. <laughs> but but as a compliment to Sweden, there's many Swedish golfers that I've been around, and I love being around them. They're they're 
cold climate Australians is what I would call Swedes. They've got a really dry and good sense of humor. They work hard and they like to have a good time. So, yeah. And Henrik, Henrik's a perfect example of that. <laughs> yeah, no, he is. All right, the last three. Okay, so you pull up to the golf course. You have an opportunity to, to choose anybody in the world that could be outside of the golf world as well, alive or, or dead, that you want to take a lesson from, and Ooh. then who you want to play with, and then who you want to have a beer with afterwards. Hmm. Take a lesson from. So that would mean that it have to be either in some way a competent coach. I would probably want to get a lesson from Phil Jackson. Mm. Or Bill or Bill Belichick. Just in terms of being, because I've had many golf lessons from technically proficient golf mm-hmm. coaches. Yeah. But the more the more time I spend around coaches that have excelled at the highest level, the more I want to keep doing that. And so that's the that's the lesson. You said what else have a beer with? Uh eighteen holes. Oh, eighteen holes. I'd love to I'd love to play eighteen holes with Bill Murray. <laughs> I, be I, fun. I think it would I think it would be an absolute blast and the different directions the conversation would go, my mind kind of doesn't even fathom. And then lastly, a beer with Ricky Gervais. Oh. Love, love me some Ricky Gervais. <laughs> my favorite. That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. Funky. You got funky with all of them. It shows you your personality. I did, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love watching that expose on Phil and everything. The when they went through Phil Jackson's experience winning championships in New York and then coaching the Bulls, coaching the Lakers, just the wealth of experience and how unconventional he right. was in his coaching. And I mean, the success speaks for itself. It's pretty amazing, that guy's background. Indeed. I, I got to ask <laughs> to finish off, how how's it going with Jordan and wh- what can we expect when we come back? Yeah, so probably have a conversation that lasts another six or seven hours. <laughs> yeah. a, a, a coaching conversation, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that would be beneficial to you. But moreover, yeah. what's benefit, beneficial to your listeners, the listeners out there that are players, the listeners out there that are coaches, is yeah. there's no there's no career that doesn't follow ebbs and flows, that doesn't face a peak and valley of difficulty and success, and then difficulty again and success again. And through hard work and through belief, any player that's tasted a level of success can get back to that level of success and experience greater success as long as the foundation of all of that is a foundation of self-belief and identity that uh, they can do this and will do this. So there's that, that determination piece that's probably the biggest learning point for any listener out there. Outside mm-hmm. of that, when I, when I start to talk specifically about him as a case, performance case or a client, I feel like it's even though I'm underneath the hood and I'm behind the curtain, when I pull back the curtain without permission, I'm violating a heavy level of client confidentiality that I'm just not willing to do. I'm not For willing sure. to be pulled into any of those conversations, no matter the talking head that's sitting behind the mo- microphone that's broadcasting to an audience, whether that audience be on Golf Channel or um, CBS Sports, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. I've, I've entertained being the sort of person that tries to defend the position and stance and each time after an evening to sleep on whether I should be responding to or give retort to any of the uh, conflict that seems like people are courting with me, 
I'll just let it blow by. Even if yeah. it means, even if it means as a coach that it in any way, shape or form pushes me into reputational prison. It, um, erodes the reputation in them, um, common golf circles, the golf circles of, of recreational or otherwise or, or high performance. Um, so that's my stance on it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I, I think everybody that knows golf and knows coaching is aware that it's, you know, from the outside and media and all this, it's, it's so much more complicated than, than it looks. And there's so much, so much information that we don't know. So the, the, mm-hmm. to assume or to judge is pointless because you any, don't know what's going on. It gets ratings though. Any pers- <laughs> it does. Yeah. Any perspective that's conveyed in magazines, any perspective that's ca- conveyed in TV, you can guarantee uh, that it has been oversimplified to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it was awesome. awesome. Yep. All the best. Uh, really appreciate best it. Success. Absolutely. Yeah. Stay safe, Cameron. Yeah. And let us know how, let yep. us know how it goes over there with you guys opening everything up. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll uh, you'll hear. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, man. All right, Cameron. Have Good a great week. Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Bye bye.